What's up, everybody? This is Cortland Allen from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders behind profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today, how they make decisions both in their personal lives and at their companies, and how the rest of us can learn from their examples to go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Now, this show is just one part of ND Hackers. There's also a website that you can find at NDHackers.com, where there's an entire community of founders and aspiring entrepreneurs helping each other get started and helping each other resolve the sort of day-to-day practical challenges that you run into as a founder. In addition, there are full transcripts of every podcast episode, including this one, at www.ndhackers.com slash podcast. Today, I'm talking to Caitlin Gleason, the founder and CEO of a company called Eligible. I think Caitlin's proof that passion and grit and tenacity are really the key ingredients to being a successful entrepreneur. Paul Graham, the creator of Y Combinator, has called Caitlin his role model, and for good reason, I think. Caitlin has been successful at a great many things, from acting to sales, and now as the founder of her company, which develops APIs for medical eligibility, claims, and payments. So I'm super excited to have you here, Caitlin. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining. Thank you. I just spoke with Steli Efti, who was part of the same YC batch where I first met you a couple years ago. I guess that was six years, excuse me, seven years ago now. A long time ago now. (laughs) Yeah, tell me about it. But you know what? I never stopped hearing about you. I've continued to hear good things about you and about Eligible since uh, you started the company right after YC. (laughs) I feel like I'm quiet. (laughs) You know what it is? It's it's because we're Facebook friends. And so I see your uh, post. Okay, I'm not quite on Facebook. No, you definitely talk about (laughs) what's going on there. For marketing and for recruitment. So yeah. I think everything that I've seen and everything that you've been doing is awesome. Thank you. But I have to admit, I know very little. Like we were going well out of my area of expertise. I know nothing about the healthcare space. I know nothing about insurance. I barely even go to the doctor. And so in this interview, you're going to have to do a lot of explaining. Yeah. So why don't we start with you explaining to the audience what Eligible is and how it works? Yeah, I always like to give a quick anecdote that a lot of people can relate to. So, you know, when you go and get some lab work done, or you say you never go to the doctor, so maybe you can't relate to this, but essentially most people, if they go and get a lab, they'll kind of stop at the front desk after they're done with the lab and the front desk will collect something like $20, right? Mm -hmm. And then two months later, that same person winds up with this mystery bill for another a hundred bucks. And they kind of go, wait, why? And the reason that's happening more and more these days is because there's this saturation going on in the health insurance market with more and more plans carrying not only a copay, but also now a deductible and a coinsurance, right? Mm -hmm. So estimations for a patient's liability up front are typically wrong, right? So most people are kind of being told, oh, here, let me get your copay and never that they're going to get this random surprise bill. So eligible um, targets that problem and a multitude of other problems, but that's the biggest problem. That's our area of focus today. Uh, We work with large healthcare institutions to solve that. So our healthcare institutions tell their patients at scheduling how much they're going to owe up front. They build our APIs into their software, like inside of their call centers or inside of their iPhone apps for a patient to schedule. And then they tell the patient, hey, you have a deductible that's going to be $150 or $120, right? And then the patient actually pays that. They pay what they owe for the service right after it's done, not months later. So, um, yeah, they use APIs to do that, and that's our area of focus. I hope that that brought some clarity to what we do. That makes a lot of sense. And we're going to dig into some of the details here because I think it'll certainly be important to understand how you were able to start this business. 
Yeah, I'd love that actually. Yeah. I think most companies that are involved in sort of insurance and healthcare, I just assume that they've been around forever. I'm like, okay, well, this company got in because they were part of how this insurance industry got created or they're part of how the healthcare industry got created. But you created Eligible, when was it, 2012? Yes, 2012. It actually, we incorporated in 2011, November 23rd, 2011. But 2012 is when we got into YC ourselves as Eligible. So that's really when the company started churning. Yeah. So I got to ask you right off the bat, uh, Breaking into an industry like this is, yeah. is hard. What do you think has been yeah. the hardest part of starting a company like Eligible? Oh my God, there's so many hard parts. Do you want me to pick one? Yeah, just pick, <laughs> just pick a random hard one. Oh, oh, oh my God. God, let me actually give you an intelligent answer because there are so many hard parts. The biggest thing for us is the need from day one to have the infrastructure in place to be in tip-top shape from a compliance and privacy and security perspective. The mass majority of our investment over the past you know, five years has been in automating every certification and compliance order that we can possibly get. Our systems, our teams, our, our customers, everything top to bottom is ironclad when it comes to compliance, security, and privacy. And we truly have no other choice but to make that upfront investment. So the hardest part is because of that, you just have to go slower than you would like to go. There really isn't a move fast and break things here. You can't break things, right? It's healthcare. So I was lucky enough to have come from Dr. Kronos. So I think that that experience definitely made it very clear to me that I had to start from scratch there. One of the very first things that Eligible did was we, I personally at my kitchen table started digging into the HIPAA compliance spec. It's a 5010 spec and it's a data spec. It's a data, electronic data interchange. It's uh, called X12 EDI. And that was one of the first things that I really learned. There's an eligibility X12 EDI transaction. And it was the first thing I learned to really get into this. So definitely the hardest part is you, you have this enormous amount of kind of... You got to pay this tax, this compliance, privacy, and security tax. And you don't get to move on and pass go. And so you sort of pay that tax. So that's definitely the hardest part. Yeah. And hopefully all of your competitors are paying the same tax that you have. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's a huge moat now because of it, right? So now we are definitely, because of the grit and the tenacity and the, uh, the just sort of obsession on probably my end, right? That this OCD, that now we definitely benefit from that same tax. I would be silly not to admit that, right? We definitely benefit from it. Moats. I love it. We're going to talk about moats. We're going to talk about all sorts of strategic <laughs> stuff here. Before we get into it, let me just ask uh, to provide some context for listeners. Sure. How successful would you say Eligible is? Like, How big is it? How many employees is it? How much revenue do yeah. you do? Yeah, there's only certain sort of factors that we share publicly. So I can tell you this. So the company is already processing on a monthly basis billions of dollars in healthcare expenditures that cross hands between patients, providers, and insurers. It's something like close to 20 million transactions per month. So it's really high volume. That reaches because some of our partners are large healthcare systems and other ones are large vendors that service, you know, hundreds of large healthcare systems. I think the last time we checked, we touched over a hundred thousand providers on a daily basis. That's so quite the, a lot. This, yeah, the reach is really large at this point. Some of our, our customers are huge vendors that have actually you would probably consider them incumbents that have been around for a very long time. All right. So let's let's get into this. First, I want to know how you know all this stuff. 
No one comes out of the womb like, all right, well, we're going to help reduce deductibles and make build APIs to help you know, doctors. Are, and, are you saying my theater degree didn't make me qualified? What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start there. You know, how do you oh, go from, uh, from being in theater uh, to deciding yeah. that you want to start a company and that you want to start a company in the healthcare space? So look, so I, I kind of came up very, I guess, lower middle class. I mean, don't say that's my family because they'll get offended, right? But, but definitely middle class. You know, my parents are incredible at love and affection and all that stuff. And I was really fortunate that way. And they always have thought I could sort of take over the world. So really fortunate that way. But I ha- have a lot of grit in me built in since the time I'm 13. I literally started working when I was 13. And I just have wild um, pragmatic optimism, right? So I'm very practical, but I'm also wildly optimistic. And I, I guess the original question was, how did you learn all this, right? Well, I fucking taught it to myself, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't know what else to say, right? Literally, I, I, I talked to t- everyone I could possibly talk to. I read everything I could possibly read. I tested, I built, I, you know, I, I took this job with Dr. Croner, right? I, I did everything I had to do the work, the grit, the real work. There's nothing you can fake here, right? I did the real work to get here. So that's how I learned. I like your your description of your childhood because it's so similar to mine. It's a little oh, bit lower yeah. middle class, very mm-hmm. loving, supportive, mm-hmm. like you can do anything you want parents. I think what's yeah. funny about growing up that way, at least for me, is like kind of never realized that not everybody's childhood was like that <laughs> until <laughs> I became an adult. And I was like, oh, some people had very unhappy or difficult or unsupportive oh childhoods. And I'm pretty lucky to have had what I had. And I think it certainly gives you this degree of confidence that you can do things. Yes. And yes. there's so many cliches about, okay, just believe you can believe in yourself no. and you can do it. No, and yeah, they're really corny, me. but there's a lot of truth there. Yeah. My dad's like Walt Disney. I'm not kidding. Like he's just like, you know, make a wish. And I think the thing I just had to teach myself was, yeah, you make that wish, but then you go work your ass off for that wish. And I had some really key people in my life even during that age, all the way up until now that are still in my life that, you know, just friends and colleagues and stuff that really made me realize, oh no, it's great to make that wish and it's important, but you've got to work for that wish too. Once those two things click together, that's when it really happened for me. So when was the first time that you decided that the work you wanted to do might involve being an entrepreneur? Interesting. Okay. So that's really goes far back. So I was around 17 or 18 years old. And first of all, I started uh, working at 13. I was something called a pastry girl at a restaurant. And then I came up through that restaurant. And then I ended up sort of running the restaurant by the time I was like 16 or 17, literally running it. And I'm working full time. And then I actually uh, got a job at retail. And I worked there for another two or three years. And again, working full time. So I've been working full time, I think, since I'm 17, right around like 16, 17. And so 40 hours a week. Can I ask why? Were you just trying to support yourself or was it just ambition? If I wanted that shirt, I had to go buy that shirt and I wanted that shirt. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, it was like, you want to go, you want to go do that? You want a car? You want to drive it? You want to put gas in it? I paid everything, like insurance, the monthly bill, whatever. So it was all about, you know, me wanting things basically. So yeah, that's how I, and then when I got into business, it was because I was kind of, felt like I was working a lot, but I knew I could make more money. That was literally what it was. I was like, okay. So I started investigating like different paths and my friend had a a sales job and she's like, oh, it's so great. I make this commission. And I was like, wait, what's commission? And she's like, oh, you actually get paid like every sale you make. I'm like, I will own that. Where where do I go? Where do I go? Where do I go? You know? 
And I'm dead serious. And I was young, you know? So I'm going to school for acting, whatever. I was going to Stony Brook University. And I get this sales job. And I don't even think the company is still in existence. It was like a business-to-business directory. Now, this is 2003. Mm-hmm. So this is before LinkedIn. But they could have been LinkedIn. Like That's what they were actually building. And you know, looking back, I'm like, that was pretty useful. It wasn't a great product. But it, it connected people. It totally could have been something really great. And here I am, I just start selling and I start engaging professionals and I start connecting them with other professionals I know. And it was so natural. I did not have to, I, all I had to do, you know, they taught me a script and I'm already going to acting school and I'm like, I know how to a script. I know how to do a pitch and I know how to object. They would teach you objections and rebuttals. And all of a sudden, you know, by 20, I'm running that, I built a sales team for them. And I'm running the sales team and there's 40 of them and I'm making them a lot of money and, and I'm going to school acting the whole time. You know, so there's just this whole, I don't know, which just became really natural to me. The reason I left that, that company was because, and this actually shaped the rest of my life, was it pissed me off that they didn't care about the product. I saw the opportunity, like I saw what it was capable of and they just wouldn't fix the product. Like they wouldn't improve the product. They were totally fine with it just sort of being what it was, you know? Interesting. Was, yeah. So for me, I wanted, I didn't want to just sell and not be proud of what I was selling. I knew I could sell. I think there's something about being in sales too, where you're constantly dealing with customers' objections and their complaints, where you become acutely aware of the problems in any product and it must be infuriating when they're not fixed because it makes your job harder. So much harder. Yes. And for me, I enormous I'm obsessed with empathy and I, I feel for people. So I was just feeling for these people. I'm like, but it's broken. We need to fix it. You know, yeah. that's what so existential crisis. I was like, I'm never doing business again. I don't care. My mom and dad were like, You're making more than daddy right now. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about me. I'm an actor. I'm gonna go waitress. And I actually did. I was like, I didn't care. I didn't want to be in that corporate world. I I felt like that was everything. Everyone was just the person who was going to sell and not build something great. So besides some of the the negative things about not caring about their product, were there any things that you learned, any skills that you picked up doing sales that have sort of carried forward to this day? Definitely. Yeah, I definitely know how to run sales. That's that's what I do. It sounds like any, any business that you become a part of, you end up running it. Yeah. From restaurant to sales to whatever restaurant, retail, then sales, and then, yeah, and then eligible. Yeah. Why is that? How does that happen exactly? I don't know. It's a very gregarious thing. It's not, it's a very love, like loving life sort of thing. It's not a, you know, I'm just excited by challenges. I think I'm also fortunate. I like to work. I actually prefer to work. If I go on vacation, I'm still working. It's just probably in like a creative setting, right? Mm-hmm. I'm doing something creative. I don't know why that is. I, I would attribute it to hard work. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. That's fascinating. That's a really tough one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll figure it out in the course of this conversation. Okay, you tell me. Or at you the very me. least, we can just make something up. <laughs> okay, you, you tell me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about how you eventually got into the healthcare space. You've mentioned mm-hmm. Dr. Chrono. I know what Dr. Chrono is, but people listening have probably never heard of Dr. Chrono. Uh, how did you get involved with Dr. Chrono and, and what was it? Okay, so where we left off was here I am, this artist. I'm like, I'm going to just work at nighttime. I'm going to go to every library in New York City during the day and like try and audition, right? Like this was my premise. 
And then all of a sudden I got really sick of working in restaurants because they have a different lifestyle. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I wake up at 5 a.m. and I start going at 5 a.m. Like it didn't fit the restaurant sort of lifestyle. And it got me really, actually, it was really depressed. And I was 22, 23. I can't really remember. Something around there. And just going through that like existential crisis of like, oh my God, I got to get out of here, you know? And um, I started reading all really old historic, what I call romantic. I find like Benjamin Franklin books, like all like old history. To me, that was like sensual and romantic. I'm not even kidding. I love old history. Did you just call Benjamin Franklin romantic? Yes. I don't know if anyone's ever said that. No, it's just very romantic to me. I don't know what to say. It just became very romantic to me. And I read Ben Franklin and I just read about like Virginia Woolf. And I even read Ayn Rand. And I just read every, I don't know. I just read every book. I just read everything. And I just became a voracious reader. And I did that for a couple of years and I, I kind of stuck with this. And then eventually I was looking for a sales job because I kind of gave up. I'm like, okay, I'll go back to this because I need to make money. I got to pay the rent, right? So I'll go back to the corporate world on one condition. I will sell if I can somehow impact the product, mm-hmm. right? If I can somehow be involved in the product. So I went on Craigslist in New York City and found Dr. Chrono. And I went to the first interview and I walked into a co-working space. Now, I didn't even know startups existed. So I had no idea what... If, I thought the whole floor was my dance from Dr. Wow. Corona. I was like, oh, cool. You know, this is great. Like, this, this <laughs> wow. And I didn't... You know, I left. I still thought that, right? I didn't know. But they explained to me, you know, we're coming out with this new product. I thought it was like a new product line. You know, we're coming out with this new product. And it was super exciting. And it was awesome. You know, it was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I'll help them with something they're not good at. They didn't like to sell. And I will, they were kind of, they had invested a lot of their own money. They weren't able to raise capital. This is 2010 in New York City. So it's a little different time. Right. And, um, you know, it, it just seemed really perfect to me. And when I tell you, I dropped everything. And I just became like their apprentice, I guess. Is that the word? I just dropped everything. I, I literally just focused 90 hour weeks with them. I did everything I could to get that product live with them, to sell doctors for them. So much so that when Mike and Dan got into YC, they brought me with them. So there I was in healthcare. And then all of a sudden I was in engineering and startup land. You know, I, yeah. I then designed their iPad, their EMR iPad with their designer. I was very much engaged in the product life cycle. So all of a sudden it just it just landed right from the romantic Ben Franklin. <laughs> I remember seeing you and the Dr. Chrono founders in Y Combinator. I don't think it ever even occurred to me that you weren't a co-founder. I think everyone thought that. I think I'm the only employee ever to go through YC. Yeah, you just did the whole thing with them. Yeah. What did you get out of that process, if anything? You know, PG and, and Jessica were amazing with me. And I guess maybe I, I don't know if I ruined that or I don't know. They never did it that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. But they, I was in it myself the next year and, and they love me, I swear. So no, but I, I, I don't know why that happened. It was the most life-changing experience of my life. I'm going to cry. <laughs> like, you know, here I was in New York and obviously I'm searching, right? Obviously it's existential. I'm searching. I want this world where people create their own reality and I'm so willing to do the work to be a part of it, right? But I wanted it really bad. And all of a sudden, there it is. Like it's so normal in YC, you know, Mountain View 
to build your own company. It is so normal for me to live in a hallway basically with my computer and my, you know, my laptop or whatever and be coding, right? And learning how to code. Like that's normal there. Yeah. And this totally changed my life. It totally changed my life. Everything about it changed my life. I remember the first time I met PG, it was on office hours and we were on a, he does walks and we were on a walk and it was me, Mike, Dan and PG. And, you know, I'm in the back, you know, I, I stayed back because it's not my company. So I, I'm in the back. And then he's all of a sudden, he sort of talking about revenue. And I'm like, yeah, I'm growing it 10% week over week. And he's like, who is this? <laughs> Come to the front. What? No, no, not <laughs> He's like, she doesn't fit. Like, she, you guys don't fit. What is this? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to help. Yeah. But it was, it was instant. Like, I knew at that point, I was like, oh, our brains, like, okay, cool. What made you decide to start your own company? rather than continue with Dr. Corona? First of all, I will say Mike made the best decision. He's the CEO. And, you know, now I'm running my own company. The day I told Mike I was leaving, he walked me home to my apartment. We did actually all live together. We're super close. We're really good friends, all of us, like super close, great, great people. And he walked me home that night and he said to me, he was like, dude, He's like, wait till you have a child of your own. And I was like, huh? And he's <laughs> like, just wait. He's like, this is going to happen to you. Because, you know, of course, as an employee of a startup, you know everything, right? You mm-hmm. know how that CEO should be doing their job. You know how that product should be run. You know everything. And of course, I was, you know, I had CEO syndrome. It was, I was thinking I knew everything. I knew nothing, right? And he, he called it. He's like, you have no idea how hard this is or how hard it's been. And he was right. Right. So why did I leave? Partially because I'm just insatiable. I couldn't ever be satisfied. I didn't know that at the time. I thought I left because of them or like they weren't giving me the opportunity, but it was all me. It was, I was ready to move on. You know, I was ready to go start my own. So great for Mike for being like, no, go start your own. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to run my company. Go start your own. (laughs) I really now respect tremendously and have like the utmost respect for. So maybe that's the answer to why you end up running every business that you join. You're insatiable and you need to do more and more and more. And if you can't run it, then you're going to start your own. And that's great. And that's why I can't give up at Eligible ever. You know, there were times, it's been almost seven years, there have been really dark, dark, dark times over and over and over again. And I just can't give up. Um, Definitely a cockroach. Yeah. Um, One other thing though, they did have an annoying thing. They wouldn't make me the VP of sales because I didn't go to Stanford or MIT. Really? And now I look back and I'm like, dudes, was it because I was a girl? Like, you know what I Uh mean? I don't know. So anyway, so like there's, there's two sides to every story. So 90% of me is like, you know what? Good for them. Like they did the right thing. And at the same time, I'm like, dude, I worked really hard. I built all this out for you. Like all I wanted was, it sounds stupid now, but all I wanted was that recognition or mm-hmm. that credibility of, Hey, she's done this and kind of had that in my, my wheelhouse of saying, Hey, I did that. So, and in a lot of ways, that's the most important thing. I mean, once you've gotten your basic yeah. needs taken care of having more money is great, obviously, but if nobody acknowledges you yeah. or recognizes you, then it feels pretty empty. It's the only thing for me. I don't care about money. I, I, I didn't grow up with anything. So to me, I'm like, eh, whatever I can live. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. So let's talk about ideas. A lot of people listening in are trying to start their first company and one of the biggest hurdles that you need to get over early on, at least, is to decide what it is that you're going to work on, yeah. to come up with an idea that at least sounds good in theory. How did you decide what you wanted to work on once you left Dr. Crono? So I was just talking to my boyfriend about this. So it's really interesting. So I think I was very much lucky to have been poor, 
right? Or whatever, mm-hmm. right? To to not have any sort of fallback. I had no fallback whatsoever. So I remember when I first left Dr. Chrono, I just told you the story and you know, I was just gung-ho on okay, I'm gonna start something. And I definitely had a lot of different ideas. There's no question. Like I had a lot of different ideas. And I almost wanted to shy away from healthcare just because like I had just gotten out of it. And I'm like, God, do I really want to pay that tax? Do I really want to go through all the privacy compliance and security that I know I'm going to need to? Do I have the wherewithal, the, the engineering, the, the expertise? And then for whatever reason, I decided, okay, this is the right move. But I think timing was also part of it. I think that there was an inflection point where I only had $5,000 in the bank when I left Dr. Chrono. And I only had like 25K credit card like line that I could use before I would have nothing, you know? So mm-hmm. I only had that. And by the way, I paid it off with no interest before the interest kicked in, okay? Anywho, from like I invest, I got investors by that time. So, you know, from my perspective, the time crunch, the, the urgency is what made me, I don't have a skill like you. I'm not an engineer by trade. Sure, I can build shit, but I can't go and be hired as an engineer. So I had no fallback. So I think that urgency of, I must make something work right now. And I know that this is a huge market and I know that I can sell this. So there was that. I think that's why I ended up going that way. What did the idea for Eligible look like right at the beginning when you first created it? And how did the things you learned at Dr. Chrono and working in the healthcare industry inform you that this would be a good idea to work on? Yeah. So it was very clear to me, two things. First thing, trend in the industry was very clear to me. All of a sudden, this new saturation of deductible plans was coming up. That's number one. It was happening. It was There was a shift. And what this means is that the insurance company is paying less and the patient is paying more. Okay. But the second thing I realized is that there is no technology for patients paying providers. None. Even like Dr. Chrono, all these guys, they all focus on insurance paying providers. So this cat, you know, this just shift in the industry, I knew was going to really mess things up for people. And they were going to need technology to solve that problem. That was crystal clear to me. Day one, crystal clear. Yeah. So you asked me kind of like, how did I see it? Right. So like, what did I learn with Dr. Chrono? How did I? Yeah. How were you aware of these trends? Was it just through doing sales and getting exposure to be able to talk directly to customers? I think this is like my only real, if I were to say I have a skill, I definitely have an ability to listen to users very closely and then factor out 10 years from now what they're going to need. And if you think about it, it's seven years from now, right? So I definitely, and it's just from listening and empathy, I think, I'm not sure. But I was hearing crystal clear to me, everything was moving to the patient. And I was hearing crystal clear to me that there was nothing to support it, nothing. And if you talk to any provider, any billing system, any backend system, none of them were actually saying this. You want to know why? Because they didn't understand it. Right. They didn't know it was just it's it's one of those things that it's kind of like Stockholm syndrome. It's so chaotic. There's so much going on that people just kind of say, Oh, it's just gotta it's this hard, it's gotta be this way. But I was able to kind of like identify, no, there's a problem. We just need to fix it. Right. We just need better technology on the patient billing side and that will fix it. Right. So that was clear to me. And originally I think your question was, well, what did you originally plan out to build? So 
in my perspective, the way that this kind of worked for me is that I wanted to, I really want, I have had a passion to solve this for the consumer, not in the way most people think. My passion is that my premise is that people forego having medical treatment because they are worried about what they might owe, right? So they will, right? So they will not go and get that preventative care. They won't, they won't get that lab that will tell them if they have cancer. They won't go get that colonoscopy that will tell them that they have cancer because they are worried that they're going to get this random bill that they're not prepared for. And anybody, it doesn't matter if you know healthcare or not, that you state that to says, yep, I didn't go and get this you know, spot on my skin you know, looked at, or I didn't go and get my diabetes pump. And my dad actually was like foregoing getting his diabetes pump and getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. I was like, what's the deal? He's like, well, what if it's going to be really expensive? I'm like, get your freaking pump. It was like a $20 copay, by the way. But it, 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 it's just, this is like my premise. So I've always been very passionate about the advocacy route of, no, I want to be able to get these tests. I want to know how much it's going to cost. I know everybody wants to know that, right? So that was clear to me. So when I first started eligible, it was, okay, maybe I'll just go completely consumer. Maybe I will kind of, try and build this, this system for the consumer to check their deductible, check their co-insurance, check their co-pays, right? And be able to just see that. And that's kind of where I started. And I needed to work with providers and work with insurers to do that. So immediately I kind of went and found, I, I literally went door to door. I found a provider in Mountain View who was willing to work with me, uh, which was super useful. I told him the premise. I told him the story. You know, I went and built uh, a partnership with uh, kind of like Stripe did in the very beginning. I, I built a small partnership with like an aggregator who kind of already had insurance connections. And I was like, okay, you know, I have insurance connections. I have this provider to work with. I went and found one of my co-founders back then. He's no longer with us. I gave him stock, but he's no longer with us. But I found him on Stack Overflow. I was like asking everyone on Stack Overflow about EDI questions, insurance EDI questions, and API questions. Uh He was answering them all. So I was like, dude, we should do this. (laughs) We can do this. You know, I I can get us into what I see. I think if we can just build something, you know, I, I, I really, really think we can. So he joined me and we did do that. So yeah, so eventually, so that first, that all, eventually that all came together and it ended up being an iPhone app. And when I got into YC and, and with the provider's permission, uh, the provider I was working with in Mountain View, when I got into YC, we were checking with Harj his, his benefits and he had just gotten an MRI and he had just gotten a huge bill for it right. because he had a high freaking deductible. This is 2012. No one knew what a deductible was, Right. So he has his bill and he's like, I just got a bill for this. We have this like bad blue shield of California plan. And I just got a bill for this. This is right. And I was like, I know. And he did it right there in real time, like on the iPhone, you know, like right in there. the middle of your interview in the middle of our, um, yeah, the interview. And no, it actually wasn't the interview. It was like the precursor to the interview. It was ah, like okay. the pre-interview. Yeah, 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 exactly. The app told him exactly where he was at in his deductible. Ah, okay. Very cool. So I got to ask you all sorts of questions about like the super early phase, because I think that's where a lot of businesses die. People don't get to the point where they've got an app developed or where they're able to get somebody to invest or where they've got a credit card. Yeah. 100% on my credit card. (laughs) Yeah. So you're funding this all on your own, on your credit card. How much runway did you have? I, I, yeah. So I, it's an estimate, right. And I hope I'm not completely wrong here, but I left Dr. Corona with 5k in the bank. And then it was about 25k in credit card line that I had. 
And it was because I had perfect credit, right? And I've been building it since I was a kid. So I could take out this credit and not pay any interest. And I had something like 10 months to pay it off before interest would kick in. So that was my runway. Yeah. That was my investment in myself. And it was bad. You know, it was <laughs> really, really dark times in a way because it was scary. I, if I failed, I would have been so screwed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Did you ever stop and think, you know, maybe this is too risky for me and I should just get a job and maybe build this business on the side? Yeah, I did that at Dr. Chrono. It didn't work out. No, <laughs> no I really didn't because I didn't do anything on the side with Dr. Chrono. I was completely focused on them. But it just doesn't work. You know, for me, it was so extreme. So I had every family member. My uh, fiance uh, at the time, we were together for literally 15 years. And he was like, you're insane. He's like, this is insane. You are crazy. You're, you're walking away from Dr. Proto. You just killed yourself for this company and they're doing well. And you're finally making a salary. Cause mind you, when I was at Dr. Chrono, I was a contract sales rep. I yeah. only made money on commission. Right. So I finally have this salary and I'm leaving and he's like, you're insane. So, and here I am in this, this, uh, Mountain View. I don't know if you've ever been to Red Rock in Mountain View. No, I never went. You've been to YC. <laughs> I missed out on a lot of stuff back then. I was pretty much heads down writing code the entire time. Trust me, like I, I get that, but that's all I do. But every morning I get my latte to code. Fuck that. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? No, I'm kidding. But uh, so here's the deal. Our, my apartment was next to Red Rock. And literally every morning I would wake up and go get my latte and like walk back to the apartment or walk to the Mountain View library and like sit in the grass with my latte and my computer and build shit. That was it. That's what I did. So people really thought I was crazy. So it was crazy for sure. And that was my runway, my credit card. So I asked some people on the Indie Hackers Forum to submit questions. And you got a lot of them. So I'm not going to be able to read all of them, but I will read a few. Adith Victor asks, Caitlin, as somebody who started off as a non-technical founder, how are you able to communicate your vision and your requirements for the product to the early developers that you worked with? I now have the proper words to articulate how I did this. So I didn't in the past. So what I didn't realize is that what I always focus on, and which is actually really good, is I always focus on user requirements and the goals, right? So what are the product goals? What is, I refer to it, what's the X, right? Like what's the X, not the Y, not the implementation approach, not Mm -hmm. how we're going to go about doing it. What's, what are we trying to do? The what, right? What's the X? So I would always in detail focus on the X and give user stories. Now, I didn't know at the time that they were called user stories or user requirements or product goals. I had no idea, right? But that's what I would always focus on. And then if there were a question on the approach that we would take, and this came, I mean, when I tell you, I know how this entire system works from, you know, our S3 logging to RabbitMQ, it doesn't, like, no, there's nothing in our infrastructure that I don't have some sort of understanding about. In the very beginning, I worked with my engineering teams to literally set up our VPN. So there's nothing I don't know. But it always began with the goal of the product. It always began with the goal of the user. And with that, building out very small delivery plans off of really clear implementation decisions that we've made, that's intuitively what we ended up doing. I just didn't know that that's what those things were called. That's awesome. I talked to a lot of people who have a background in marketing, uh, a lot of people obviously who are developers and started companies, but I think 
coming from a background, a sales background, and also yeah. combining that with being a genuinely empathetic person is such an advantage because then you automatically do the things that you need to do. You care about the user stories and you care about making sure that like you're actually solving a problem for them and the implementation is secondary to that. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of my, you know, you you either love it or hate it, right? And a lot of my engineers have really just adored that about us because they if they say it's very different than most companies where it's a big why discussion usually. It's a big implementation discussion and the X and the what and the user can sometimes really get lost. So let's talk about your first customer. How did you convince the provider to sign up and what did you have at that point in time? And I realize I'm asking you to remember ancient history here. So. No, it is a really long time ago. So one of the first ways that we really started getting customers and, and they were paying us a few thousand dollars a month because we had already built something useful. Building this iPhone app with this aggregator made us realize to get rid of the aggregator. So we retired the iPhone app. So we retired that product. We retired the aggregator. We're like, we're building our own connections, right? Like, no, no, no. Right? So that's when we really started to be able to like bring in customers, right? I think another thing that always shocks people is we got so many customers just from like posting on Hacker News. Um, I guess because we're an API. So it was an integration. We had really simplified building this iPhone app with this aggregator made us realize, screw this old format, we can build an API on top of it. And I know it's going to sound so lame, but I remember when I had the idea because I was at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View and there is a walkway like over... I, I have no idea why I remember this, but I was I walked everywhere at that time and I was walking home from it. And I just remember having this idea, the concept became really clear to me that, hey, we don't have to like buy this old infrastructure to parse this old format. An API can do this. Look at Twilio. They're doing this. What, what is it? Like OFX? Like we can do this. Like we can just have them send us parameters and we can give them back JSON, right? And at that time, I didn't even know what JSON was. I was <laughs> like, well, we'll give them back a string of variables. What? <laughs> and I'm like on Stack Overflow, like, is this a good idea? And everyone's like, oh, why don't you use JSON? I was like, JSON, JSON. I know everyone's going to be like, she's so lame, but it's actually what happened. Like, you know, it's, it is what it is. Seven years ago, I don't have to be embarrassed. But yeah, so it, for us, like putting that together and putting the JSON together, that actually created super, that created value. I mean, that's an invention in the healthcare industry that I never get credit for, by the way. But like, that's an invention in the, in the healthcare industry. So much that I've had incumbents that run IT teams for like huge billion dollar companies say, you know what? Your YouTube videos from 2012 saved us like $10 million last year. I'm like, what? Like, oh yeah, we redid our whole infrastructure around the idea of having an API instead of this like Sterling Commerce EDI parser. You should what? be charging for these YouTube videos. I know. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So that in itself was enough of an innovation and it created enough value to generate cash flow, right? I mean, we weren't profitable yet at that time, but it was enough to have early customers who were willing to pay us. Uh, It cut down their integration time instantly, right? So it was enough. And by that time we had a a solid small team and, you know, we, yeah, it worked really well for us. So you figured out a lot of things right in the early days. And I think that probably contributed to how fast and how quickly you're able to grow. Uh, This question comes from a member on the forum. Louis Nichols asks, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you made in the first few months of your company? And to that, I'll add, if you could go back and sort of redo this early history, what would you change? I don't know if I would change anything from the early history because when you're early, it's only you that you're hurting. I would change stuff from later history when I had a bunch of employees and I wasn't 
fast enough to catch up to everything I had to learn. And because of that, I hurt people. And that's actually what I like hurts me the most. I'm like, because I was trying to figure out now how to run this sort of larger corporation. We're a global corporation. We have people everywhere. I have designers in Europe. I have people in Canada. I have people in India. I have people in California. I have people everywhere. Right. So we, it was really hard for me to keep up with that as fast. And I think the way that I dealt with it was sometimes by just being like super excited and coming off like really aggressive and like scaring people, you know? So I, that's actually my, if someone ever asked me like, where did you screw up? Or like, what do you feel bad about? I feel really, I just wish I would have done all of this more gracefully. Let's talk about those changes because your company, I assume like every other company has changed and evolved and grown a lot as you've hired, brought on new people. And I'm sure the ways yeah. that you've had to hire have changed and the ways that you've had to find customers have changed. What yeah. are some of the biggest milestones between you know, you first getting into YC and you actually having dozens of employees and then servicing dozens of customers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The biggest thing for me, as I said, we are in a business where we are creating a category and this category has never existed. And very few employees and investors have the patience and the wherewithal it takes to create a new category. It's a lot of uncertainty and there are a lot of unknowns. And when we walk into an institution and we have, you know, a potential ACV, which is a year annual contract value of a couple million dollars at that institution, the sales cycle becomes a bit of really deconstructing like their, their departments and their, their inner workings. And are we working with their IT team? Is that who's going to be buying us? Or is it, you know, their finance team? It's really unknown because you're creating a category. And while I was doing that, I had to also sort of be creating my own corporation, right? So there's just, that's the biggest milestone. It all kind of like came together about two years ago in 2016, because we had grown the company 8.4x. We had brought it to profitability and we were profitable for like a whole year. And then we raised significant capital. So doing that, all of a sudden the stakes are so much higher. All of a sudden you're now not the underdog, you need to perform at this, you know, this high growth density. And you hire all these people at the same time, incredibly intelligent people. And then you're fighting to keep up with that. And and ultimately what happened for us in the first year, we had spent so much time on compliance and everything. We very much felt that we landed in the chasm. You know, we very much felt for the year that there was some stagnation. You know, we we had grown so much and we were profitable. And, you know, that year when you first hire everyone, it's, oh my God, you know, like, is everything, everything all right? What am I doing wrong? You know? So mm-hmm. that was the biggest inflection point. And what would I definitely change there is I just would have handled it more gracefully. I got us out of it. And now, you know, we're right back, you know, <laughs> but I did it like a warrior, right? Where it's yeah. like, chill, chill out chill out. Like I got us out of it, but it was very aggressive. Well, give me an example of some of this aggression. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So, and it's only because, okay, so here's my philosophy and I've now since changed it. My big thing is if I understand concepts, I don't need to know the words. So if you've ever heard Richard Feynman, he talks about this a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, what, who cares what that bird is called? I can tell you everything about that bird. You're not like, it doesn't, if you know the name of the bird and you know nothing else, you know nothing about the bird. Whereas a lot of times people who are sort of bullshitting are the exact opposite. <laughs> they don't know the concept, but they will just say the word. Bam. And then pretend and like that means they understand. It was really, cause I know it on such a deep level, user requirements. and like, you know, these vision product goals and 
really screwed me up because I felt like I was surrounded by people who just knew the names. And somehow that made them maybe smarter than me. Maybe it was like an insecurity or something. I really struggled there. And the only way I can get through that is to kind of just fight through it. Like, what is it? And then finally it came to me. Oh, I just have to, I got to know how to communicate with my team, you know? And ultimately that's my fault. And something I wish I would have learned faster is this nomenclature that you guys all learn when you go to engineering school. I just knew it by learning it intuitively, instinctually, right? By doing it. And I didn't have the vocab. And that was actually, uh, when I fixed that, that's when everything was fine. But to find the fixing, I kind of was just like, out. I just, uh, maybe it's a girl thing. I don't know. No, that's fascinating. It's cool. It's really interesting because you said at one point, you know, you're trying to figure out how to make your business work and how to explain to customers what you're doing and and solve the problems in the industry. But at the same time, your company's growing. And so you have these dual challenges that you're trying to juggle. And is it really possible to do both of those things perfectly? It's challenging to even do one. I just wish I could have done it more gracefully. (laughs) Yeah. But I want to talk more about this category creation thing because I think it's a fascinating topic. Because I think a lot of people don't really, especially first-time founders, don't talk about it. They don't understand the difference between creating a category and and entering an existing category. What is the difference? And and how does that lead to sort of a different experience as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So when you enter an existing category, your price is already set. So you really can't go in there and start, you know, really taking a price and making it your own, right? Because it's already been set. Um, uh, There's a great A16 podcast where they're like the price of Kleenex is the price of Kleenex. You can't set that price, right? That category. But when you walk in and you're actually sort of building out essentially almost a new department at the institutions that you work with, and we work with very large institutions. Now, all of a sudden you're capturing so much value for them. You're de-risking so much of their revenue or you're making them so much revenue that you can charge an order of magnitude more than your commodity counterparts. Right. So this sort of category creation and what we've been going through, you know, there's one example of an account we just went into pilot with for the next three months. And they formerly were paying us like maybe a few hundred dollars a month. And this pilot is priced at something like 26K a month. Right. So just that one example, like I just pulled like a random, you know, pluck a random example out. And it's not that their volume is changing, it's just that we have expanded our value prop. Right. So we've built more and more products and services to make what we do to them more and more valuable. Right. So we increase their revenue, we decrease their cost. Now they can go from 15 full time employees to two. And it's hard to like overstate how important that is because yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Patio 11, but him and also Mark yeah. Andreessen always yeah. shouts us from the rooftop that one of the best ways to make more money in your company is to raise your prices. And if you create a category and you're able to basically set the price, because you're not really limited by competitors, and you're not limited by the status quo, then you can raise your prices through the roof and at the same time increase the value of your company by 5 or 10 or 20x without having to find that many more customers. Yeah. How much of this were you aware of before you started Eligible? And how much of this was stuff that you learned on the job as you were building your company? So here's the thing. I always knew I was determined to create a category. And your investors, it's a very lonely road because everyone will push you to sell to an existing market. Why? Because it's simple. It's known. You know who you're selling to. They'll, they'll push you into a commodity business, a rat race, right? So it's a very lonely road. So again, it's one of these instinctual things that I was... My work was leading us here. We, it was leading us to building our own category. Again, I didn't have the freaking words, right? right? It didn't have the words. So 
I'd like to say I knew exactly what I was freaking doing, you know, but it, because I didn't have the words, it was a little awkward, <laughs> you know, now that, and, and that's why actually I'm becoming such a proactive person in talking about it because I want other founders to not feel so lonely and to know that, no, the, the goal at the end of this horrific path is worth it, right? The value you create. I mean, this is how revolutions get created, right? This is how you change the world. This is how, you know, so in my opinion, by creating this new thing that didn't exist before, but it has been very difficult in the sense that I wasn't able to name exactly that, you know, okay, we're, we're entering this market. We know it's huge. We're literally going to be able to take, you know, this pot of gold and move it to that pot of gold by building this new category. And this is exactly how we're going to do it. I would, I kind of wish I was able to lay that out day one. There's so much on that that I want to respond to. And we only have another five or so minutes here. But one of the difficulties, I think, with creating your own category and one of the reasons why people direct you away from doing it is just that it's hard to explain to people what you're even selling and why it's valuable if they've never had anything like that before. How have you tackled this challenge and explained eligible to your customers? I love it because in the A16 podcast, the A16Z podcast, uh, they call it calling the baby ugly. Who wants to call? You don't want to call someone's baby ugly, <laughs> right? I mean, that's literally what we have to do. We're walking into an institution and telling them that the, the status quo that they're used to, it cannot be anymore, right? So there's, you really have to reset the playing field. You need to understand what they're doing in their current state and then essentially debug it with them so that they fully understand this new world and the new capacity that which you know they can do this. So one really tangible example. So we use a lot of data science. We build a lot of like machine learning models off of historic data for these folks. And previously, what they were doing before us is they were keeping algorithms and spreadsheets. So and they were completely human driven, right? But now we're actually, you know, algorithmically driving those through like data models, right? Which constantly get updated versus them trying to like sit there in a spreadsheet and like look through their right. whatever, you know, we're, we're ML models, right? So that's a great example. But you got to understand the people, the hundred people at this institution that currently right now sort through a spreadsheet are important to these people. Right. So, so the institutions find these people very important. So to say, no, you don't need people doing this in spreadsheets anymore. We're going to put this in data science models, right? We're going to do this automatically. It's a really hard thing to, to do. Let's talk about moats for a second. Since you brought this up earlier in our conversation, I think when you're creating your own category and doing something new, you don't necessarily have that many similar competitors at first. How long does that stay the case? Have competitors to eligible yeah. popped up? And if so, how do you think about keeping your value proposition unique and differentiating yourself from others? I, I think that the level of depth there is to our offering now. So as I was saying earlier, this expansion of the value prop, the level of depth is also another moat. So I think that folks would have to get through the initial moat and then they could say, oh, we do that. But then anyone who sat down with them would know they don't, right? Because if they sat down with us and sat down with them, they'd know they don't. So they have to get through the first moat. Now, the second moat we've built over the last two years is this like business intelligence moat, which would be another few years for them to get through. So I'm sure they'll come up, but it will, we just have a, a nice runway without them right now. The new ones. Incumbents who pretend that... So they just like slap on you know some like website and it's like, you know, I'm an incumbent. I already own the account. Right. I'm the account owner, right? I've been with these people for 10 years. We go to dinner every month, whatever. Yeah, we're going to do what Eligible does. They've been saying that for five years, but they can't even, they can't even do what they do. 
these incumbents. <laughs> we start to look at what they do and we're like, they're not even doing their own job. They're saying they're going to end up doing ours. Like, no. Right. Do customers believe them? I think they believe them in the first three years, but by year four, it's like, we're still needing this. You said you're good. It's on the roadmap, right? It's on your roadmap, right? Yeah, it's on a roadmap. Q4. No. <laughs> yeah. So where's all this going? Where is eligible in 10 years? Where do you want to be? <laughs> now it's a hundred billion dollar company, bro. So it's going to be huge and you're going to be there forever. Forever and ever. Why? Why not? It's a worthy cause. I really think that because it has such high impact, I was dead serious about that um, story about my dad. He really didn't get the, it was a life threatening product that he needed. This diabetes pump, um, he was literally skinny. I, I, I would kid with him. Your next step is the grave. Like you are bones right now. You need this pump. He gets the pump. He gained 20 pounds. Right. Also, and he was not doing that because he literally didn't know what it was going to cost him every month. And that to me is a worthy cause. That's awesome. Well, Caitlin, I've enjoyed having you on the podcast. This has been great. I wish we had more time to talk, but maybe I can rope you into coming on the show next year. And we'll talk about what's new with Eligible. In the meantime, can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to? Sure. I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's Kat Gleason and on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Caitlin. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.